What's up, gang? Man, I'm going to give you all another shot. I mean, first service was way better. So just saying. Uh, what's up, friends? That's what I'm talking about. Thank you very much. See, uh, so hey, real quickly, uh, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and join me in James chapter one. If you're uh, just joining us this week, uh, we actually started a new series uh, last week entitled James. Uh, as we uh, just begin to explore the letter that was written by James the Just, the half-brother uh, of Jesus. And uh, we dove in last week. And then this week, uh, we're going to be diving in to verses 12, really through about 21 today. Uh, but as I think about this story uh, and what we're going to be reading, it brought to mind another story uh, about a young man who his dad uh, had moved to a, a kind of a new area in the city. And uh, not too far down the road was a canal. And the, the father said to the son, he said, hey, boy, do not go and swim in that canal. There's other places, but don't go swim in that canal. And the boy said, yes, dad, I, I can do that. Well, a handful of weeks go by and the, the boy uh, comes through the house and he is drenched from head to toe. And uh, he is obviously been swimming somewhere. And so the dad says, hey, boy, where, where'd you go swimming? And he said, well, dad, I went to the canal. And he said, well, what did I tell you about going to the canal? He said, well, you told me not to swim in the canal. And he goes, well, why did you swim in the canal? He said, well, because I had my swimsuit with me and I was, you know, I was there at the canal and I just, he goes, oh, I'm confused. So you took your swimsuit to the canal to hop in the canal. And he said, well, no, I didn't take my swimsuit along to hop in the canal. I just took my swimsuit along in case I felt compelled to, to get in the canal. And he goes, okay, but I don't understand. He said, why would you take your swimsuit along if you knew that you shouldn't get into the canal? And he said, well, dad, I've just been playing it in my mind. And he said, in case I'm tempted, I wanted to be prepared. And so I had my swimsuit along with me in case I was tempted to hop into the canal. And obviously I gave into my temptation and dad, I swam in the canal. And as I think about that story, I think about how oftentimes we take our swimsuit along even though we're not supposed to hop into the canal. And how many of us, we're waging this war inside of us and we know the right thing to do, yet we don't do it. Or on the flip side, we know the wrong thing that we should avoid and yet we find ourselves doing it. Paul seemed to have that conundrum in Romans chapter 7. You know, and it's just something that we wage war in. Well, James is going to address that today. So if you have your Bibles, join with me as we begin in James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. Uh, we ended with this verse last week, but I think it's great for context to pick up there this week. And so here we go. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, the encouragement here is that while there is indeed trials, and James says earlier to consider it pure joys, my friends, when we, when we face a variety of trials, a, a vast difference of trials, he says here, hey, but blesses the man who endures through those because he's going to receive the crown of life. The crown of life, the word Stephanos there is a, is a crown that uh, is, was given back in the day for those who would run races, particularly in the Grecian games, they would give a crown. But we know from scriptures that the crown that we receive and our reward is, a, is an eternal crown. It's one that lasts forever. And so with that encouragement, James then adds on to that thought in verse 13. He says, so therefore let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by 
God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So in many ways, what he's saying is, he goes, listen, those who stand up under the face of adversity and the the numerous trials that there are in life, he goes, those are the ones who receive the crown. But just also know where trials and temptations come from. And he says specifically here that temptations don't come from God. So he just wants to make it clear that temptations themselves are not coming from God because one, God cannot be tempted and he also tempts no one. Now, when it says that he cannot be tempted, it doesn't mean that there was never a temptation. We clearly see in Matthew chapter four that Jesus, who is himself God, was tempted. But the reality here is that he doesn't give way to temptation. So God does not sin and he would not cause us to sin. So there is no temptation that is given by God. So in Matthew 4, just as Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, the adversary, it is you and I who also would be enticed or led away by the devil or the adversary, or in the case of our lives, maybe even our own flesh, which we'll see in a few moments. Now, the reason this is important, though, is because I think oftentimes we can, diff- we can have a difficult time wrapping this concept in our minds around who God is. Because the question that you have to ask yourself is, okay, if God is not the one who tempts, and he would never, he would never lead us into evil, can God allow difficult circumstances in our life? And can he allow trials? And are trials the same as temptations? And I would say they're different. So, so how, how can he allow trials? And, and even is it permissible that he would allow temptations, although he doesn't cause them? When I think what you would see is this. We live in a place called the world, and the world is oftentimes luring and enticing us and dragging us away. And the reason why is because God permits us to live in a world. And where there is the world, there is the flesh, and where there is the world, not only is there the flesh, but there's also the devil. And so if you, you see those things working in our life, then we know that God allows things to happen. So a great example of that would be Job, uh, Job chapter 1 and 2, where the enemy asked for permission in many ways to sift and to challenge Job and his alignment to God and his devotion to God. And God certainly does allow Job to be tested and for him to endure trials. But what's important to know is that God does set limits upon that, which we'll talk about in a few moments. But it's clear here that James is just saying, hey, listen, when you face temptation, you need to know where it comes from and where it doesn't come from. And so he continues on in verse 14, and he helps us understand where temptation does come from. Verse 14, So temptation doesn't come from God, but, verse 14, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now, it's important, though, here to know that he is lured and enticed. And the word there in the Greek is exelko, which literally means to be baited or to to be entrapped. And then he says, it's by your own desire. And he uses the word there in the Greek, epithumia. And epithumia simply means to crave or long. So when he takes this concept and he puts these things together, he goes, here's what it looks like. A person oftentimes is lured just as a fish is lured. So it's a beautiful spring day in Wills Point and in Edgewood, Texas. Some of you 
rednecks might want to go fishing today, right? The winds might not be blowing too hard. It might be a good day to take a lure and drop it in the water. And when you drop a lure in the water, the goal is, is to entice them. It's entice a fish to take the bait. And when you think about that, it's literally the idea of an exelco. It's the idea that you would ensnare or trap or that you would lure something to bite the hook. That's what James is talking about. He says that's what happens when we are tempted. There is a lure. There is something floating around that would entice us to bite. Now, you might think the fishing analogy works in East Texas, but in the Bible, there's another analogy that also works, and it's the harlot, the one who seduces a young man. She looks a particular way, she smells a certain way, and then she says, my door is open to a foolish man. And in Proverbs chapter 5, you can read it, but the, the man there in Proverbs is the father to his son. He just says, listen, son, give heed to my words, pay attention to my words and follow my instruction. And then he literally in Proverbs 5 just walks through and talks about what it looks like to be a wise young man and how you would avoid the harlot. Why? Because the harlot is meant to seduce a young person away, to ensnare them and trap them. Just as a lure catches a fish, so a harlot keeps uh, desires to in, 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 uh, ensnare a young man. That's the idea. And so as you see James write these things, that's exactly what he is saying. He says, hey, just be careful because if you're lured and enticed, it's by, then he says, your own desire, which is interesting here because he could have easily pawned it off on the enemy. I want to make a quick note and, and not everybody might agree with me, but I want to just say this. Um, a lot of people in this room blame Satan when Satan doesn't have any need to mess with you, nor is he everywhere at all times, so he doesn't have the ability to mess with you. The, reason, the reality is, is that you are the problem because you are continually enticed by your own desire. And so he makes it very clear here that your own desire is the flesh. And when he uses that word epithumia, he's literally saying, it's you that gives way every time. It's you that that in some ways desires what is forbidden. And I don't know about you, but is there something innate in us that wants what's off limits? I mean, you think about classic movies and, um, you know, you think about the bridge to Terabithia and uh, this movie about these kiddos who they long to go into the other side of the woods, the woods that are in some ways forbidden. And it's this, this idea, this notion that on the other side of the creek are these woods where we can explore and there's, there's this land that exists. There's something out there that people want to keep us from. And there's this longing in some ways to enjoy and be satisfied with that which is lurking on the other side. And in Genesis chapter 3, you see clearly that there was a warning to Adam and Eve prompted in Genesis chapter 2 to stay away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But there was something in them, right, that they had to take the bait. So when God says, listen, don't eat of it for you will surely die, Adam and Eve's response is, ha, come on, not surely die. Even when the enemy, the adversary, ask Eve the question, you mean to tell me that you can't 
you can't eat of it. You're going to die. What was her response? She says, yeah, we were said to not even touch it lest we die. See, the idea is, is there's something in us innately that says, hey, let me take the bait. And James is just warning us to be careful of that. And the reason why is because when that desire to have something that's unknown, that desire to be satisfied by our inner craving, when it gives birth to us, the idea here is conceived. It's the word sulambano, uh, soon, which is with, lambano, take hold or seize. When it seizes us, then we are trapped. So the word Conceived there literally means that it gives birth to sin. And when it does, it grabs a hold of us and it does not let go. Sunum lombado. That's like when that happens, friends, that's no good. Why is that? He says, because when it's fully grown, it brings forth death. So he goes, it starts in us. And it's this lust, this craving, it's this desire for satisfaction. As we kind of begin to wade off into those murky waters, there's something in us that desires more. And as we give birth to that, as it conceives in us, it, it snatches us up and it brings forth the fruit of righteousness. No, it brings forth death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And friends, that's not merely physical, it's spiritual. I would go further to say there's, there's even this emotional angst that comes with us and in us when we know we've been ensnared and enticed to foolishness, particularly foolishness that we've done before and we knew we should avoid, but yet somehow we found ourselves at the canal and we happened to bring our swimsuit along. And it just is a death that comes over us. Why? Because we know it separates us from God. Uh, there's an African tribe called the Zulus. And uh, oftentimes that tribe is uh, in, encouraged to snatch an animal for a local zoo. One of the animals that is the most difficult to catch is the one called the ring-tailed monkey. And the way they catch the ring-tailed monkey is they take a melon and they draw, drill a very, very small hole in that melon. And the reason they draw a small hole in it is because the ring-tailed monkey's hand is not very large. But what the ring-tailed loves is the seeds and the fruit of a melon. Loves it so much that if you drill a hole in it, they'll put their hands in it. And as they clench the seeds and the fruit, they refuse to let go of it until they can grasp what's inside. And so upon grasping the fruit inside, the Zulus Indians come and they snatch up these little ring-tailed monkeys because the ring-tailed monkey refuses to unclench their hand. And as long as they have a fist clenched to their fruit, it won't fit back outside of that little bitty hole. Well, friends, that is exactly what James is talking about. He says clearly, each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed. By his own desire, he grabs the fruit. The desire when it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. We snatch it, we refuse to lay hold of it, let go of it, and guess what? It causes a death in us, physically, spiritually, emotionally, all these different things. It can bring upon shame and guilt and in many ways a separation from God, even amongst those of us who are believers in Christ. It just continually brings forth death. And you might ask the question, well, is there any time that a lust or a temptation or being ensnared in something that is sin, is there any a time where it won't bring forth death? And I would say, no. 
Temporary satisfaction? Yes. And you may think temporary is longer than my temporary, but the reality is that you'll find yourself at some point, just like the young man who took his father's inheritance and he went and he squandered it and he lived with pigs. At some point, you'll look up and you'll realize that my enticing nature has led me to live among the pigs. And you'll wish you would have done differently, which is why James says these words in verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Now, when he's saying do not be deceived, it might feel a little bit odd here. And it might feel a little odd because you're like, okay, well, deceived from what? Like sin? Well, I would say, yes, deceived from sin, my beloved brothers, but also from who? The adversary. Now, it's important to note as we're talking about not being deceived, that I think oftentimes we are deceived because we, we don't know really how to, in some ways, to, to live a life of self-control. But I think also after we are deceived and after sin is conceived in us, I think oftentimes we blame the wrong person, which is I think why James is giving clarity here just to realize, hey, God is not the one who tempts you because he can't be tempted. And so he's not producing evil in you. Now, why does he give us that clarity? Why does he give his audience this clarity? And the reason why is because there is something about us and our nature that after we've fallen, that we've got to blame someone. And inherently, I think we have the tendency to blame a father or, or blame someone. So it could be like the little boy that was going to the canal and he could have said, well, dad, you didn't prepare me enough for the canal. You told me stay away, but you should have told me so much more. But see, we have this inert desire in us to blame someone, which is why he says, hey, don't be deceived. Deceived from what? Well, Satan, his adversary, your flesh. But while we're on this topic, I don't think we talk enough about this within the local church, but let's just talk real quickly about Satan. Who is he? Who is he not? What's his role in the world? How much power does he have? And I'm not gonna spend a great deal of time on it, but it's worth noting a handful of things. And I'll just kind of give them to you. You can go back and fact check me. You can add to this list if you'd like. But Satan one is not some, um, he's not inertia and he's not a force, okay? Um, so what I mean by it, it's not some supreme force out there. It's not this cosmic force out in the world. What we clearly see from scripture is that Satan is a personal being, now, when I say a personal being, I'm not saying that he is indeed personal, but he is a being. And that is, he is also a created being. So because he's a created being, he is not the creator. So everybody say, not the creator. Not the creator. Really important, really important to note. He is not the creator. So he is not supreme, but he is a created being. Uh, you can go back to the Old Testament, you can read a variety of places and certainly could come to the place where he was a fallen angel and certainly wanted to usurp God's authority, certainly had pride and was tempted to and lured, enticed by his own desire to be like God. And as a result, he is a fallen angel and he has a legion of those who follow him, which you would call demons. Okay, now you might not believe in Satan or demons, or you might think it is just a personal force in the world, but what we would see clearly in scripture is that they are created beings who have usurped God's authority and have rebelled against him. As a result of that, they have made it their mission to live in opposition to God. And so Satan is a created being who is living in opposition to the creator. Now, let me ask you a question. Can you, as a created being, live in opposition to the creator? Yes. Um, this person, this fallen angel, has made it his life's mission to live there. 
And so he lives in opposition to God. And so if he lives in opposition to God, what do you think he longs for? He longs for others to live in opposition to God and not just merely his cronies, but he would love to have you join his team. And so he is moving throughout the earth. And what is he desiring to do? He's desiring to entice others, lure them. Some lure themselves, but he would love to lure others onto his team in opposition to God. Now, as we think about that, you might say, well, okay, then why is he always messing with me? And I just want to point something out real quickly. He may not always be the one messing with you. And here's why. If you remember, he is a created being. And a created being like you and I has a beginning point and ultimately will have an end point. That's crazy, right? So as a created being could have a a beginning point or an end point. So the created point for him was, uh, was when he was created to be one of God's workers. He fell from heaven because of his disobedience. In the end, which hasn't happened yet, we know that he's going to be cast into the lake of fire and his domain and his rule and his authority will be no more. We're not there yet. As a result of not being there, it's important to note that this created being is not omnipotent, which means he is not all-powerful. He is not omniscient, which means he is not all-knowing. And here's the good news. He is also not omnipresent, which means he cannot be at multiple places at one time. Why? Because he's a created being and he is finite even in his own nature. Which, good news, y'all following, tracking? He is not God. Because our God is all-powerful and he is all-knowing and he is everywhere. And so because Satan is not like our God, we shouldn't be too worried about Satan. Should we be warned of him? Should we be ready for him? Absolutely. Should we be afraid or fearful of him? By no means. Why? Because he is limited in access and he is limited in power, church, if we know who he is. And so here's the deal. Um, He also... um, he, he is actively working to tempt, to deceive and destroy. So here's a few things that we know about him. We know from Revelation chapter 12 that he is the accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. He wants to accuse you before God. He would love to bring up every list that you've ever done. He would love to get into your head and ultimately move into your heart. And he would love to accuse you of all the things you've done. He's not just the accuser. He is the father of lies. So Jesus said that about him in John chapter 8, verse 44. He is the father of lies, which means that he is crafty and cunning. He's witty, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. We know he prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, to destroy, which is why Peter said to the church, hey, be sober-minded, be watchful, hey, be on guard. Why do you need to be on guard? Because the enemy is real. Jesus said this in John chapter 10. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. And he wants to steal steal and destroy and kill your family. So the reality is, is that we know that he's working, but here's the good news. James, we'll address it in a few more chapters in James chapter four, and that is that you can resist him, that you can stand firm in your faith, that you can draw near to God, that God will draw near to you and that the enemy will flee. And so here's the good news. Y'all with me, friends? Satan does not have to have any place in your life. And more than that, he only works under God's authority. So God is the ultimate authority and any authority that Satan has is given by God. And you might ask the question, well, why would God give any authority to the adversary of the enemy? And here's the deal. Because a good father oftentimes 
trains up his son to send him into hard places to see how what? How much he's grown, to see how much he's matured. And so was a father unloving to send him, his son, into a difficult place? I don't think so. What would be unloving of a father is if he had never matured him or encouraged growth in him. And so can God, in fact, discipline, reprove, or allow difficult things to happen? Can he use the means of someone like Satan to even accomplish those things? Yes, he can. Is he ultimately in authority? Yes. Is he a loving father? Yes. Is he all-powerful? Is he in control? Yes. Is Satan? No. That's a lot, right? Let's continue in verse 17. Knowing that, James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, where do good things come from? Clearly, he says above. So he doesn't say every good and perfect gift is from God. He says from above. Now, why does he say above? Because God is above and God lives in the heavens above. So when you look up to the heavens, you are to think about who? God. And so we lift our heads. That's why multiple times in scripture, you are to set your eyes on things above. Why is that? Because God is above. And so his domain is not here and it is not down there. His domain is above. And so we think about the heavens. We sing and we lift our hands to the heavens and we praise God and we extol the mighty work of his hands. And we do that to the heavens. Why do we do that to the heavens? Because he is above. So James is clearly saying every good and every perfect gift comes from God who is above coming down from the father of lights. Now, what's interesting is, is he doesn't have to go to this great detail to explain who God is, but he says he is the father of lights. Now, why is that? Because the enemy, the adversary, the devil is not the father of lights. He is the father of darkness. Matter of fact, not only is he the father of darkness, but we clearly see in multiple places in scripture that he desires to deceive people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Satan would love to deceive and blind the hearts of the unbelieving. Now, why are people blind? Because they cannot see light. And so they live in the dark. What does the enemy want to do? He wants to keep people in the dark. Matter of fact, one of the most cunning and crafty things that Satan can do is keep you and I in the dark. And here's how he does it. He makes you believe in your head and your heart. He gets into your head in such a way that you can't even confess what you have done. And the reason why is because you believe, because the enemy calls you to believe that because of what you've done, you wouldn't be welcome here. You wouldn't be welcome in any church. And so he would get in your head and he would cause you to believe because of what you've done or because what's been done to you, that there's no hope for you. And there are many people over the years, in the last 12 years of our existence here, who have said, listen, if you knew what I've done, you wouldn't let me in there. And I would just say, if you knew what I thought today, you wouldn't let me teach. Because the reality is, is that in our own heart and heads, we are deceived and we are prone to what? Be enticed or ensnared. That's just the truth. But the deal is, is that we have a God who causes us to live in the light. Why? Because he lives in the light. He is light. And so because he is the light, he's inviting you to come out of those dark spaces in your head and your heart and even in your past. And he is saying, hey, be transferred. It's the idea of what Peter writes, even in, in First Peter chapter two, when he just says, hey, you are a royal priesthood. You're a chosen race. He goes on to say, he goes, and God has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous, what? Light. What's the invitation? The invitation from God is simply this. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, and no matter what's been done to you, there's a God in heaven who loves you. 
and you don't have to be chained to your mistakes. You don't have to identify with your past because there's a God in heaven who's pursuing you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And if you'll come to him, then you can find freedom. You don't have to be yoked to your pain. You don't have to be yoked to your mistakes and you don't have to hide in the dark. And friends, there is something innate in us that says, I must not tell other people of what I've done. And I would just say, that's a fallacy. Matter of fact, here's what the gospel invites you to do. The gospel invites you to say, here's what I've done. This is when I did it. These are the people I did it with. And yes, it broke God's heart. And yes, I sinned against him. But because of his grace, he met me in that pain. He brought me out of that. And yes, absolutely, I did those things. Yes, I'm not proud of those things. Absolutely, yes, I wish I could take all those things back. Yes, I know that those things make me look really bad. But in spite of all those things, I've received the goodness of God. And I'll ever receive the goodness of God. But I am telling you here and now that not only did I do those things. And so as they circulate around our town, which they will do, um, as they do that, you are not worried about what other people say about you because at the end of the day, you know who now ultimately is control of you. And that is the gospel. The gospel actually says, yes, I was addicted to these things, but then I met Jesus. Yes, I did these things, and, and, and then I met Jesus. Yes, I have, I have returned to those things recently, but by God's grace, he's continued to mold me and shape me. That's the church. The church is not for the healthy, but it's for the what? The sick. But the longer that we walk with Jesus, the more we think we're actually healthy. And the longer we walk with Jesus, the more we think we don't need a, a doctor. But the reality is, if you're really honest with yourself, we're continually needing to be drawn to the light. And we're continually, in some ways, tempted to live in darkness. Because that's the lie that the enemy wants you to be. And if he can keep you living in the darkness and shadows and variations of change, then the reality is, is you don't know who you are. And if you don't know who you are, then it renders you useless and ineffective to the gospel work. Because if you don't know who you are, then how in the world do you tell others the hope of the world? And therefore, the enemy renders most of us ineffective because we're chained to the darkness of our past. And I'm just telling you, that's not how God works. He encourages us to live in the light as he is in the light. Check me on that, 1 John chapter 1. Go read it. But then he doesn't just say he's the father of lights, but he says, in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What does he mean by that? He means that our God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Which is good news because that's what God told Malachi the prophet. He says, I am the Lord God and I do not change. Malachi chapter 3 verse 16. Now, why does James mention this? Well, because there were people in that day and time, and there are still people here that they have this idea of a process theology. The process theology is, well, God had to start somewhere, and if God started somewhere, he had to grow from something, so God must continually be growing as he goes. So if you and I need a maturation process, maybe God needs one too. And so if God is maturing then, and evolving, then that means that God could change his mind any other day, because as he grows, then, well, he... He's going to see that he does things differently. James just clearly says that's not who our God is. Our God 
is the one who's from above. He's the father of lights and there is no variation or shadow due to change, meaning he is constant. He is always the same. That's good news. Verse 18, he goes on, he says, and of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, this is really important because he goes, it's by his own will that he brought you out of darkness and into the wonderful light of Christ. And that he did that so that you would be the kind of first fruits. Now, when he says first fruits there, it, if you know your Old Testament, it's gonna draw some analogy in your mind. And the first fruits are what the people of Israel would bring to God to their appointed feast. And they would give them the first, group, first fruits. And it could be the first fruits of an animal. It could be the first fruits of a sheave of grain. It could be a variety of first fruits that God would say, hey, set apart for me these things. Now here, what James is saying, he goes, when God changed you and he brought you out of darkness into the wonderful light of Christ, he wants to make you a first fruit. And that word there in the Greek is the word aparche. Everybody say aparche. Now you might wonder, well, what in the world does a parche mean? A parche simply means is that God wants to take you from darkness and bring you life. But more than that, as he does that, he wants to set you apart. So when I think about darkness and life, I think about a handful of scriptures. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 27, it says this, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will, will be short. So God is desiring to bring about a prolonging of life, make you a first fruit. Proverbs 12, verse 28. In the path of righteousness is life. In the pathway, there is no death. So with God, there's life. There is no death. Proverbs 19, verse 16. Whoever keeps the commandment keeps his life. He who despises his ways will what? Die. So he goes, God, by the word of his truth, brought you out of those things to give you life and then to set you apart as a first fruit, which means that you would be consecrated. But it also means a little bit more than that. So when you think about this idea of first fruit, think about a lump of bread. Now, some of you, y'all have sourdough starters and y'all know all about that kind of stuff. I don't have a clue about that. I know enough to get myself in trouble, but here's what I do know. I know that you take enough sourdough starter, you feed it a little bit, so you start a new lump, okay? And then you can take these lumps and you can make something with it, or if you want, you can give those lumps away. And the more that you feed this starter and you care for it, the more lumps that go out. Is that true? Okay, some of y'all are like, I don't know. Just, yeah, that's true, okay? That's how it works, okay? <clears throat> now, here's the deal. That's a parche. That's the idea. You take from, from a lump and you start a new one. That's the idea here. That's the, that's the thought about a first fruit. And it can be used in a variety of ways. Here, what we see is that James says, you're the first fruits of his creatures, which means that when he brings apart the change in your life, he sets you apart as not only his, but it seems to be that he doesn't want you to just be a lump of bread that's new. It goes further in meaning that he also wants you to like bread, rise above the rest. So it's kind of this double meaning. It's that he pulls you out of the lump and then you rise above the rest. Here's the way I think about it. When you go to Brookshire's, why buy the, the cheap bread, right? You know the cheap bread that we feed our kids for lunch? Like the great value stuff? Okay, that is not the good bread. There is better bread. Not only is there better and more tastier bread, but he's saying as you are called out of the lump, you should become a better bread. You are the first fruits to God and you are the first fruits among the people you're around. So here's the idea. James is saying, it's not enough for you and I merely to call ourselves a part of the family of God. We actually ought to shine within the family of God. It's not enough to just be one of the loaves of bread on the aisle. 
the goal is, is that you would be set apart among the loaves of bread on the aisle. That's his point. His point is, is why are we okay with just being a casual part of the local church? Be set apart. Matter of fact, I can prove this, what he this is what James means because look what Paul means in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I'll put it for you up on the screen or you can turn there in your Bible. But in verses 15 and following, this is what Paul says. He says, now I urge you brothers, you know that the household of um, Stephanos were the first converts in Achaia. Now the word first converts there is the actual word there, parche. So he goes among the brothers in Achaia, Stephanos was the, he was among the first. He was among the first, those that were called out of the lump. Y'all see it? He was set apart. That's the word in Achaia. And that they have devoted themselves. Now, who's they? These first believers. They've devoted themselves to what? To every, uh, to the service of the saints. And then he says this, verse 16, be subject to all of these. To who? To these first fruits. He goes, be subject, like lend yourself to these first fruits for they are something special and to every fellow worker and labor. And then he says this, verse 17, I rejoice at the coming of uh, Stephanos and uh, Fortunatus and uh, Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. And then he says this, he didn't have to say this, but give recognition to such what? People. Now the question is, is such people is what? Like, just these three men? No, he's saying give recognition to those who are set apart as first fruits, as first believers. Why? Because they are living lives that are different than everybody else. Recognize that among them. Y'all see that? Which is huge. That's why he goes on and says this in verse 19 of James chapter 1. So knowing this, knowing that there are first fruits, Knowing this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry, for the anger of the man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now, here's what he says, and we'll close with this. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Now, that's something I teach my kids, and that's not wrong. It's absolutely okay, but in the context of this, I think this is what James is trying to say. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of a variety of kinds. Hey, blessed is the man who stands up under those trials. Hey, know that God's not tempting you. Hey, know that God is using these things among you to produce in you the first fruits. He wants to make you different. So the idea of that is kind of found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, which we just believe that Scripture teaches that, hey, listen, God is ultimately using all things for the good of those who love him. That means your hardships and your trials, your highs and your lows, all of it is producing in you as a first fruit to be set apart and different. Which James is asking, okay, the question, okay, if God is producing in you any of these things and he allows trials and difficulties and even your temptations as a means to bring you into his image, then he says, who are you to shake your fist at God when those things happen? Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. See, it's a different context, isn't it? Because when trials happen, I don't know about you, but I have this innate desire in me to go, God, what are you doing? And can't you just remove me from this? James goes, listen, this isn't, this isn't God's problem. God might allow a trial, but he's certainly not tempting you. So he just makes a difference in correlation. If you've led yourself down a path and you've been seduced by the harlot of your own sin, you name it, 
Then he goes, that's on you. If you've been sifted because I want to bring about trials in your life to see the refining of your faith, then he goes, that's on me. I think the idea is, is that anyway, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Recognizing that everything that God is using in your life is to bring about his purposes so that you are conformed into his image, which is a difficult concept, right, to think, that God would allow difficult things in our life to bring about his purposes. Y'all remember what I said about a father? And I'll close with this. A good father has to make a lot of decisions for his son or daughters. That's just true. And we have to use a lot of wisdom as to what we allow our sons and daughters to be a part of and what we keep them from and allow them to be part of and all these different things. And one of the biggest keys to those things are not only the decisions we make, but the timing of those decisions, right? Because as kids grow up and they mature, then we think they're responsible. They can handle a little bit more. And obviously, even knowing the difference in your kids, that there are some kids who are older, but they're less mature than the younger, but more mature. But the reality is the father, I have to prepare my children. And there's a variety of things I'm preparing my children for. And one of those even can come down to conversation about, say, homeschool or private school or public school. And those are, those are a myriad of topics that you have to, to, to really endure. Here's the point. There is a place and time for all of us as parents that we have to send our children out into the world, right? Whether we want to or not. Like, I don't think there's many of us as parents in here that we're going to keep our children until they're 66 in our house. Like, that's not my plan, right? Probably not your plan. Well, as wise parents, that's not our plan. What is our plan? Our plan is the best way we know how under the convictions of the Holy Spirit in our own life to train up our children the way that they should go. Why? So that they won't, they won't fall off the ancient path. But here's the deal. The moment that you put them out of the world, into the world, are they going to face hardships, trials, potential temptations? Yes or no? Yes. Does that make you a bad parent? Does it? You're like, I don't know, does it? <laughs> it does if you didn't prepare them for it. And that's why our parenting matters. But here's the deal. As parents, there's a temptation in us that we say, well, I'm just going to keep them from all of it forever. And that's not possible either. So I think here, I think with the context of what James is saying here is that we have a father who is calling us to be a first fruits and he's sending us out into a place where there is darkness and there are variations and shadows and seasons of change. But there is one who never changes and he is light and he is trustworthy and is true. And we should point our kiddos towards him. But at the same time, a good father is going to let his kids face the adversity of the winds. And there are going to be storms, there are going to be trials, there's going to be bumps, there's going to be bruises, there's going to be lots of scars and scrapes. But in reality, we have to train up our children in ways that please God. At the same time, James, in the context of this, saying, hey, when you face trials, why are you always questioning your good father who gives good gifts? Because he's allowing some things to happen in your life so that he makes you the kind of man or woman you need to be. It's a different thought process, isn't it? I think that's what James is trying to hit on, and I hope that helps. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we're gonna sing together, and we're gonna do something slightly different as we close our time together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for just the privilege it is to 
be together in your word. And I pray, Lord, that you would use your word to spur us on towards love and good deeds. Uh, We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness to us. And pray, Lord, that you would take your word and, Lord, that you would help it to just land on soft and fertile soil and that you would produce in us a harvest of righteousness and that you would separate us as among the world as a group of people that are called your first fruits. And so, Lord, may you implant your word in us and would you keep us from foolishness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So something that we don't do all that often, but as we kind of close here, we wanna do uh, over the next handful of moments is this, is as the church, one of the things we get to do is be what we call burden bearers. And so as burden bearers, we we just get to, to pray with you and encourage you. Um, And I know that as a result of things that are happening in your lives and the trials that you've endured, some of the hardships that maybe you're wavering in your faith or maybe you're just like, hey, I'm not wavering, but man, I just need to stay strong. Hey, would you pray for me? As we close in this song, what I wanna do is just invite you, if you'd like, just to come. And I would love to pray with you. I would love to encourage you. And then as we kind of close our song, what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna share with you a couple of people here that are struggling with some things so that you too can bear their burdens. Because our goal as the church is not merely to come and sit and get. Like our goal is to be, is to not only be transformed, but friends, like there's a lot of needs that are going on in our church family right now within this room that you don't know about. But we would love to share those with you so that we could pray for them together. But then more than that, you can be praying specifically in this season for a handful of people. And so maybe you're not, you know, some, this isn't something you see that often, but this is, a, this is an opportunity for us to do this. And it's something that we're gonna integrate more and more into our services so that we're not merely singing, getting, and going, but so that we're singing, we're receiving, we're staying, we're praying, and then we're going. Make sense? And so in this song, you can sing, but if you'd like, you can come share too. Hey, this is what's going on. This is what I need prayer for. And uh, me and uh, Dick Patterson, uh, and, and there's a handful of other men in here that you know that you are a burden bearer, which means that you can come and pray with someone. I'd invite you to come. You, it's not just people here. You can be a burden bearer as well. And so feel free to do that. But if you need prayer, come real quick, and then we'll pray for you.